My sense is, for what it's worth, we are a bit of a distracted bunch this morning. And perhaps a bit of heaviness. And that may not be for everybody. Uh, and so don't allow that to be applied to you if it doesn't. But my sense is that that is what a lot of people are dealing with. And uh, I was sitting thinking about what I, what I think is the most important parable in the New Testament because Jesus said it was the most important parable in the New Testament, which was the parable of the soils. And, and he mentions that in the parable of the soils that the Word of God is like a seed. It's being thrown out and that that seed lands on different types of soil. And, and he equates the human heart to those different types of soil. But in that parable, he, he talks about that, that there is a work the enemy does to try and come snatch that seed before it can ever fall into good soil and grow. Like he just wants to come and, and get it, snatch it away. And my inference there is that God is speaking. God is revealing and he gives his word and that there is an enemy who seeks to steal that word before it can ever go into our hearts. And I believe that's a very real thing that happens. So I don't want... My goal is not to offend us, not in a, in a human way. But there is one important thing today, and that is that we hear from God. That is more important than how we feel. That is more important than what we're worried about. That is more important than what we're distracted by. Those things may be incredibly important, but they are not as important as hearing from God. And when I say that, I don't mean it's not as, as important as my preaching. But I mean it's not as important as what God does in and through the preaching of His Word to our hearts. So I want to ask you to put your mind there as much as you can for a moment, but specifically, would you pray to be able to do that? Would you pray to be able to hear from God and receive from Him and not be distracted from that? And I want to pray for us and ask God to do that as well. Because I don't think, I don't think that is something that simply me giving us an exhortation can do, uh, or even that we can just will in and of ourselves. We, we need Him. So Father, I want to ask you again, would you please reveal yourself to us? God, for the hearts that are joyful and at peace and at rest, God, would you would you speak, God, for the hearts that are heavy or weary or distracted? Would you speak, God, you are greater than all of those things. Like a person 
in a desert, thirsty, dehydrated, we are in need of living water. We are in need of refreshment from Your Word. And I thank God that what we're talking about today is central to who we are as a church. So God, would You let it be that the enemy is not able to snatch from us the seed of the Word. But would You grant us in this room and on live stream, and even later to someone who listens to this, would You please grant us the gift of revelation? Would You please grant us to hear with spiritual ears? In Jesus' name, Amen. So we have been in this series we've started for the year called Rooted and Growing. And the stated goal that we have in this series is to see with spiritual eyes from God's Word the essential nature of the church. And so we started last week, uh, and we are continuing today meditating on how we as a church are to be rooted and growing for worship. We started this last week, we're continuing today. So I want to go back for a moment, and I want to kind of go through some things from last week that we talked about, beginning with our definition of worship. Now I said last week, this is a working definition that we're using for this sermon series. So if you have a different theological definition of worship, that's that's okay. Uh, we're, we're As long as it's coming from the Word... Uh, but we're trying to pull this from some of the original languages in the Old Testament and the New Testament. What is worship? And so what we said last week in our working definition is that it is a bowing down in honor and adoration. Worship is a bowing down in honor and adoration. And we, we gave four truths last week, and I want to remind us of those truths about worship. One, truth number one is worship is initiated by God. God initiates worship. God created us as His image bearers. He created us that we as His image bearers would express with our very lives the beauty and the value and the worth of God. Being completely satisfied in Him. Needing nothing else. Anything else that we were given would just be an added bonus because we had God. And our joy would be in Him. So the bowing down of worship we talked about last week, it's not just a physical bowing down, but it was intended to be a bowing down that occurred from our very core, all of our being. But our worship, truth number two, became corrupted by sin. Sin corrupted our worship because man rejected God as supremely valuable. That is the root of all sin. That we say God is not enough. God is not most valuable. And so we rejected Him as supremely valuable and we pursued instead to worship and serve things that were created. The things that we could see around us. That's where life is. That's where joy is. That's what I'm missing out on. God, who called us to find satisfaction in Him, saw us fall into a place where we were seeking satisfaction apart from Him. But God, who initiates worship, also works to bring us back to a place of true worship. And so we saw, truth number three, how Jesus purifies our worship. 
Jesus, by the work of His sacrifice and resurrection, makes a way for us to be freed from the worship of created things. To be freed from idolatry. To be freed from worshiping idols. We don't think of the things that we give ourselves to as idols because we tend to think of idols as little statues. But idols is anything that we are finding satisfaction in apart from God. Jesus came to set us free from that, to transform us into a people who are zealous for God, satisfied by Him, and expressing His worth everywhere we go. That's the transformation that comes for Christians. That everything becomes about Him and expressing His worth because we're completely satisfied in Him. And then when Jesus returned to the Father, truth number four, the Holy Spirit was sent because the Spirit empowers us for worship. The Spirit empowers us in a life of worship. The Spirit of God gives us gifts and the Spirit of God helps us where we can move from a where we are satisfied by created things and He sanctifies us so that we go from a man-centric, creation-centric life to one that is entirely God-centric. And we are moving and growing in that God-centeredness. That's something we should be able to see in our lives over time. That more and more we are not satisfied by mere created things. But more and more we are hungering after God. We are zealous for Him. Satisfied by Him in expressing that. Because you and I naturally express what we're satisfied by. You and I naturally express what we find joy in. No one has to make us do that. You can think around to people that you're close to, your close friends, your family, and if someone wants to say, hey, what are they, what are they into? What do they, what do they love? Where do they find joy? Like, you can tell them quick. Because we naturally express that which satisfies us. So today, what I want us to do is to try and take those four truths about worship, which what we saw last week are inherently personal. We haven't even really gotten, as of last week, to what we typically think of as worship, which is this, being at a church building together. But all of last week, we're just looking at the personal nature of it. Because that's what Christ came to do. It's not about a location. It is about the people and the hearts of the people. So it was inherently personal. But this week, we're turning our focus in these four truths about worship And now I want us to see how these truths speak into the very nature of our corporate church life. How those four truths speak into what we do as a church. And when we gather, even right now, on a morning like this, when we come together, how do those four truths speak into what we do? This is an essential act of the church. Gathering as the people of God with the intention of the worship of God is an essential act of the church. Throughout Scripture, we see God's people gathering to do this, Old Testament and New. And this for us cannot be a mere formality. This cannot just be 
what we do because we're Christians. So if you're a Christian, what do you do? You go to church. Sunday mornings. If it's a formality, if it's a tradition, if it is a routine, if it is a habit, then we run the risk of completely missing it. The purpose in it, we completely run the risk of just wasting our time. Because it is more than just a mere formality or a tradition or a habit. Our purpose when we come here is to express God's worth being satisfied in Him as a people. Our purpose when we come here is to express God's worth being satisfied in Him as a church. Expression and satisfaction are intrinsically linked when it comes to worship. Don't think you can separate those. You can't truly express the value and the worth of God if you're not satisfied by Him. And part of being satisfied by God is living in such a way that you express His value and His worth. So when we come together, that's what our aim is. Our number one primary goal is to express to God in this place, to one another as well, the worth of God and our satisfaction in Him. When we together draw near to God because we're zealous for God, we're expressing His worth. We're expressing that He is satisfying, all satisfying to us. I said this, maybe it was last week, Within the last couple of weeks, I said, like, my desire for us as a church is not just that people come, but that we want to come. And I'm going to add different language to that today in saying that I want us to be zealous to be together. But not just because of relationships. I want us to be zealous to be together to express the worth of God and be satisfied, satisfied by Him. So let's take these four truths that we looked at last week and we're going to weave them in and out talking about corporate worship. We're going to do that in this way. If you have a handout and you do the fill in the blanks for the notes in corporate worship, it is vital that the church and we're going to look at three things that are vital for the church. Number one, in corporate worship, when we come together, it is vital that the church seeks God to engage our hearts and stir deep affections for Him. It is imperative, vital, critical, necessary that we engage, seek God to engage our hearts and stir deep affections for Him. Why? Because it is God who initiates worship. That was our truth from last week. So if God initiates worship, if God works for worship, to bring us to a place of true worship, then we have a desperate need to seek God to engage our hearts and to stir up in us an affection for Him. We desperately need that. Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. If you want to turn there, you can. We're going to look at this passage for a moment. But in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders of His day, and He applies to them really rebukes them using a prophecy from Isaiah. And so he looks at these religious leaders 
these Pharisees, and he says of them, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So when it came to external acts of worship, no one got the external acts better than the Pharisees. You could not find a more religious bunch of people when it came to the outward, external, expressive acts. They did all the right things. Not only did they do all the right things, but they had created a whole list of other things that they felt that they should do to try and be as pious looking as they could. So here is Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, who's walking around and he's teaching. And here are the religious leaders, the most renowned, well-known, well-respected worshipers in his day. And Jesus looks at them and looks to the common people that follow him. And he says, of these people... Everything they're doing is vanity. It's pointless. It has no purpose. It's fruitless. People would have been shocked. Because these were the, these were the people who you, you lived your life religiously trying to be like them. Be as pure and as clean ceremonially as they were to be as pious externally as they were. And Jesus says, yeah, everything they're doing is pretty much worthless. Why? Because while they honor me with their lips, their hearts are far from me. Jesus is teaching us that external acts are empty and pointless if they are disconnected from a person's heart. It doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter what we sing. It doesn't matter what we pray. It doesn't matter what we read. It doesn't matter what we teach. If it is disconnected from our heart, Jesus says it's vanity. It's pointless to just come to a gathering and go through the service motions if our heart is not engaged with God. Is that not the danger in settling for religion that merely focuses on keeping rules? And church, is this not what will lead many morally good, decent, religious people who are outwardly doing the things that they've known their whole life, to even fool themselves and stand before Christ one day to be surprised to hear, I never knew you. Because while your lips honored me, your heart was far from me. So what's the answer to that? Is it disengage until our heart's in it? No. Is it to fake it till we make it? No. I hate that term. That's just another way of being religious and trying to do things in your own power. I'll just go through the motions till it all works out. 
The answer is not to work harder to make yourself love God more. The answer is to cry out to the God who is near and has made Himself available to change your heart. That's why we started with Psalm 51. David's prayer. God, would you create in me a clean heart? God, would you renew a right spirit within me? God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. But God, would you please restore to me joy in being with you? Would you please restore to me zealousness for you? Would you please uphold me, not by my power, not by my rule keeping, not by me faking it until I make it. Would you uphold me with a willing spirit? Create in me what I lack. Do you not believe God will answer that prayer if you pray it genuinely? I intentionally use the word engage here. In corporate worship, it's vital that the church seeks God to engage our hearts. Engage means to attract. It means to occupy. It means to involve. We need God to do all three of those things with our hearts. We need God to attract us to Himself. Not to mere religious practices and things that are attached to God. But we need God to attract our hearts to Him. We need God to occupy our hearts, as in consume us. We know what it's like to be consumed by something. We know what it's like to be consumed by fear or worry. We know what it's like to be consumed by joy for an event that's happening or an activity that we're involved in or something that we've been waiting and waiting to come on TV or a, a movie release. We understand what it's like to be consumed by those things. We need God to consume our hearts for Him and to involve us, to involve our hearts in heavenly things that we can't see. So church, let me ask you a question. And I'm going to ask this of myself. What if we didn't just treat this as a mere formality or a tradition? What if this prayer from Psalm 51 and those like it is what we prayed every Saturday night in preparation for being with the people of God? What if we got up a little earlier on Sunday so that we're not so rushed and chaotic so that we could spend some time praying and asking God to prepare our hearts to be with the people of God to express worship to Him and to satisfy, to be satisfied in Him? How many of you have ever experienced a A, a what do you call it, Kevin? An, an intense time of fellowship in marriage on the way to church. You think that's accidental? How satisfied is the enemy of our souls for us to just be in a building completely disconnected from everything happening? He doesn't care about the building. He doesn't care about your location on a Sunday morning as long as your heart is consumed with something other than God. He's fine. What if we quietly prayed 
at the beginning of our gatherings this prayer. What if we prepared to be together? Asking God to engage our hearts. Number two, we vitally need God to engage our hearts and stir deep affections for Him. Number two, in corporate worship, it is vital that the church esteem God only. Esteem God only. Alright, so think about truth number two from last week. Sin corrupts worship, right? God initiates worship, sin corrupts worship by pulling us into idolatry. This can happen in the church. This can happen in corporate worship where we give ourselves to things that are not really of God or are not the most important things. So that Matthew 15 passage from a moment ago, verses 8 and 9, I reference where Jesus said of the Pharisees, in vain do they worship me. He goes on to say what we didn't read, is they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. So part of what Jesus is saying about them is their worship is vanity because their hearts are far from Him. And one of the evidences that their hearts are far from Him is that they've taken their own ideas of what's good and right and godly and they've elevated those things to be on par with the law of God. So they're teaching not just the Word of God, but now they're teaching their own commandments, but they're teaching it as the Word of God. In other words, these leaders had so highly esteemed their own ideals, their own good and godly rules, that they had made an idol of them. Here's what God said. Here's what we think you should do. And they made an idol out of those things. And they'd put them all together. And it looked godly. It sounded godly. You can have godly rules. It sounds right. And maybe there's wisdom in it. But if you teach it as a doctrine of God, you're making an idol out of that which you think is wise and godly. You're adding to Scripture. So you and I must be aware that when it comes to the church being gathered together, we can fall into a very similar trap. We can value what appears to be a really good tradition in the church. We can value what appears to be a new innovation in the church that we're really excited about. We can value peripheral things as much as we value God. We can be zealous for things that we think are of God more so than we're zealous for God Himself. Churches in America have done this regarding style of dress. They have done it regarding style of Musical instruments or not having instruments. They have done it with how they adorn their sanctuary. They've done it with, they've done it with amenities in the church building. Someone reminded me of a sermon from, I don't actually remember when it was, maybe a year ago or a year and a half ago where we were talking about this and I was imploring you as a church that you know, you may not always be here. There may come a time where you're seeking a church for some reason, circumstance God's brought into your life. And, and I said, like, 
Don't fall into the trap of choosing a church because of what they offer. Because of what their particular ministry looks like or, or how convenient things are. Or because everything is just the way you like it when you get there. Whether it's you know whatever the peripheral things may be. Anything from just the style that they have to the coffee bar in the back. You know, are those things bad in and of themselves? No. But you don't put those things on par with the presence of God. That's what we highly value. This misplaced worship can even sneak into our motivation for coming to church. I don't say this for any reason except that maybe by the Holy Spirit's power, He would He would help us to see and strip away how easy it is to let other subtle motivations for wanting to come to church sneak in and replace wanting to be in the presence of God to express His worth and be satisfied in Him with other believers. We might desire to come to worship so we can see people we love. We might desire to come to worship to feel better about our week. Saw someone post that on social media today, not from here, but this someone that I'm I'm friends with that is just a pastor of church. He said, Have you have you had a rough week? Come be with other people who are on the journey with you. And 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 encounter God. Now, are all those things good? Yes. But our lead line is not, have you had a hard week? Come be with other people who've also had a hard week. You see, that's a very subtle way in which we are valuing something more than being in the presence of God. We might desire to come to worship as leaders because we want to motivate the church toward a goal or because we want to evangelize the lost or we want to collect an offering. And everything that I just mentioned have has merit biblically. It is rooted in the Bible. But none of those things should be valued as much as our desire to express God's worth and be satisfied in Him. None of them. They're good, godly things, but they must not trump our desire to be in the presence of God. That is the primary reason we come to this gathering. So how do we battle against idolatry? How do we battle remaining idol-free in the corporate gathering? Number three, in corporate worship, it's vital that the church centers itself on the Word of Christ. So follow from last week. God initiates worship. Sin corrupts worship. Jesus does what? Purifies worship. So if we want to keep ourselves from idolatry, even in the corporate gathering, we must center ourselves on the Word of Christ. Now I want to remind you of a couple of things. As Jesus purifies our worship. Remember when we studied the Gospel of John, if you were here for that. John starts out in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And a few verses later, in verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is John teaching? Jesus is the Word of God. Became flesh. The Word of God is all about Jesus. I've told you that before. Don't just think of studying the Bible as just reading an older book, right? And, And trying to learn from it, but... It is living and active. To study the Word is to study Jesus. To 
Go to the Word of God. It's to draw near to the person of Christ. And that gets confirmed, I believe, by Jesus later in John. We talked about this in those sermons as well. John 15, 7, Jesus says, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And I told you when we preached through that, that it's interesting because what you would expect Him to say is if you abide in me and I abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But what does he say? Changes it. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. And I think he chose to say, if my words abide in you, because Jesus is the word that became flesh. And so for the word of God to abide in you is a means for Christ to abide. It's one of the ways that Christ is in you. The Word about Him is in you. So as a church, if we want to center our corporate gatherings on Jesus, it means we need to center our corporate gatherings on the Word of Jesus. That's what needs to be central in all that we do. Because that's how we center ourselves on the person of Christ. This is what purifies our worship. This is what keeps us from error. This is what keeps us from idolatry. This is what keeps us from worrying about the wrong thing. We started our service today looking at Nehemiah 8. Scott read. It's one of my favorite Old Testament pictures of corporate worship. And I love it. It talks about how Ezra was on this wooden platform that had been made for that purpose. Ezra had found him someone like a like a Lamar and said, hey, I need this. Will you build it for me? And, and so they used their gifts and they built this wooden platform. And so he stands up and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. And he opened it so all the people could see. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. When you, when you read what's happening here, Ezra opens the book, Ezra blesses the Lord, all the people answered, Amen, Amen. What had he not done yet? He hadn't even read yet. He opened the book. He opened it up and began to worship God and all the people began to worship God. Saying amen and amen and lifting their hands and they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord. They knew they were about to hear from God. And the very presence of the Word of God among those people brought out worship. They were centered on the Word. And that centric principle, or that word-centric principle, is carried over into the New Testament. So Paul tells Timothy, who's his co-worker in establishing churches, he tells him, be devoted to the public reading of Scripture and to the teaching of those Scriptures. I loved what Lamar said a moment ago. He is exactly right. We're not just... Reading the Word on Sunday to fill time. And the people who are coming to read the Word are not just 
doing that to fill a space. I've talked to a lot of guys in the church in recent days and I, and, and some of them we were talking about, hey, would you like to be a part of a team of people that's reading scripture publicly? And I said, like, I, I only want you to do that if your heart's in it. Because this is ministry. This is part of prescribed worship in the New Testament. Publicly read the Word of God. Word-centric. Many of the New Testament letters, or excuse me, many of the New Testament books were actually originally letters that were read publicly in a worship gathering to the church. Acts chapter 2 shows that the early church was devoted to gathering together to listen to the teaching of the Word. And Acts chapter 2 connects that to prayer. They would come together to hear the Word taught and pray. So we see the Word central there. And we are told in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And it goes on to connect the teaching of that Word of Christ to the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's very interesting in the Bible, singing has multiple functions. Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 19, connects singing to thanksgiving, to expressing joy. So you sing to praise. That is probably how most of us think of singing. As a matter of fact, some churches became very traditional to call the time of singing praise and worship. Because what they were doing is singing praise to God. And that is a biblical function. But it is not the only function of singing in the Bible. Colossians 3.16 attaches singing to teaching. It connects singing to teaching. You should know this just as living life, right? Songs are powerful. You can, you can hear a melody or a song you haven't heard in years and immediately be able to sing those lyrics. Because songs have a way of getting in our hearts. Therefore, Lyrics become sermons. They teach you something. What you sing teaches your heart. So it's important what you sing. It's important the music we listen to. And it's important that our singing as a church be connected to and rooted in the Word of Christ. The New Testament is really silent on what it should look like when a church gets together. Like in terms of, the Bible doesn't say, okay, do this first, do this second, do this third, make it last this long. Like the Bible just, that's silent on those things. And there's several theologians, and I agree with them, that think the reason for that is God was giving room for the Spirit of God to lead the church of God based on the time and the culture that they're in. And I don't think that just means anything goes, but I think it means that exactly how we do things may depend a lot on where we live or what time period we are in. But what does not change and what is obvious in the Bible is that the essential things is what God has shown us, that the essential is that we must be word-centric in everything we do. And we want to grow in that as a church.
We want to become more centered on the Word of Christ. We want to read the Word publicly more and better. We want to sing the Word more and better. We want to pray the Word more and better. What I love about what God leads Rob to do every week is that when he comes up here, he doesn't just give you a topic to pray for and say, okay, I think we should pray for this this week. He gives you Scripture because the prayers that we have for the next week that we're praying as a church is connected to the Word. We're praying the Word. And we we all, myself included, we need to get better at that. We need to realize it's not just that moment that Rob's reading that for us, but like this is our focus for the week that we would take the Word and meditate on it and chew over it and pray for it throughout the week. We want to get better at that I want to get better at teaching the Word. Some of you can say amen to that. I I do. I want to get better at knowing how to center what we're talking about on the Word and teach that. So we need to center everything. It's vital on the Word of Christ. And the number four, in corporate worship, it is vital that the church ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit. So remember last week, God initiates worship, sin corrupts worship, Jesus purifies worship, the Spirit empowers worship. So number four, when we come together for worship, it is vital that we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit empowers what we do. Jesus tells us in Luke 11, verse 13, that if we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, we will receive Him from our Father. God will give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask. The Spirit empowers all we do. If He doesn't, then it's not effective. The Spirit gives life to our speaking. I don't know how many of you have opportunities to teach here. Many of you do. Some of you may have opportunities to teach one day. One of the best pieces of advice I could give anyone who is going to teach, whether it is for five minutes or ten minutes, or preaching for an hour in front of a church, don't go to teach until you have spent some time face down, asking the Lord for the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not trying to make that a religious rule, so don't put that on par with Scripture, okay? But counsel from David, not necessarily the Word, is get on your face and ask for the Holy Spirit. He gives life to our speaking. He gives life to our praying. He gives life to our hearing. He makes everything we're doing effective. And He also grants us gifts. This is an amazing thing in the Bible. And maybe we'll talk about it later in this series. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us there's all different types of gifts that come from the Holy Spirit. And He grants them to us, to His church. And in verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, To each is given to each person, to each Christian, is given a manifestation of the Spirit. That's what Paul calls a spiritual gift. A manifestation of the Spirit. That means an outward evidence of the Spirit of God. He gives an outward evidence of the Spirit to each Christian. And those gifts are for the common good. The common good of what? The church. And Paul would later say in chapter 14, 1 Corinthians, that the exercising of those gifts, which he gives very specific ones, is for the building up of the church. 
So we should ask for the Holy Spirit, and I believe we should ask for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we should ask for His manifestation among us, outward, visible evidence of the Spirit. And we should understand that one way we strengthen the church is by the ministry of our presence. If you have a gift that the Holy Spirit has given you for the common good of the church, which the Bible says you do, then for you to not give the church your presence is to withhold from the church that gift that the Holy Spirit has given you for the building up of His church. So there is a ministry that you do by your very presence among the people of God operating in whatever gift He has given you. And some of those are out front gifts and some of those are interpersonal and by what we would call behind the scenes gifts, but they are all visible manifestations of the Spirit of God. So we should be among the gathered church. We should be open to opportunities to minister with our gifts that the Spirit gives. And we should be open to let people minister to us. When we miss out on that, we are failing to gather and when we fail together, we miss out on that and other people miss out on the gifts that He has given us. If we don't see this time as essential, where we gather together as the church, if we don't see it as essential, then, then we won't give our presence, our ministry of presence to others because we won't even see why it's important or what part we have in it. So may the Lord give us revelation there. Eli, you can come up. Or whatever we're doing here at the end. I thought about how I wanted to kind of end today. And... I want to remind you of something I said last week. Personal worship impacts corporate worship. If you would go home, if you take notes, and and look at these four things we talked about today, and think about how they apply to your life Monday to Saturday, every day, how those four things we just looked at apply to you. And understand that if we're living those things out daily, where we're asking God to engage our hearts, where we esteem God only, where we center ourselves on the Word of Christ, and where we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, then the gathering of a group of people who are doing that throughout the week is going to be powerful. Personal worship impacts corporate worship. I also would ask you to ask yourself... Considering these four things, what is it that I could do in light of these things to both see this time as vital and treat it as vital and prepare for it as vital? What needs to change in my routine? What needs to change in how I view things? What needs to change in what I'm doing? Is the Holy Spirit showing that I... I come here, I enjoy it, but maybe even my reasons for gathering are 
secondary to what the primary purpose should be, to express to God His worth. So I want us to think about those things and pray those things. And certainly, I want to say to us that personal worship all begins with a relationship with Jesus. Personal worship begins by hearing Jesus say, come follow me, and saying yes. So this morning, if you have never come to follow Christ, even if you've been in church your whole life and you know a lot of things about religion, but you just know, like in my heart, I don't know that I am zealous to follow Jesus. I don't know that I've ever actually come to follow Him. Then I would love to have a conversation with you about that. Before you leave today, let me know that you want to talk about that. If you're a young person in the room, let your parents know that you want to talk about that. And they... Just so they know what's going on. But then, you know, you can talk to me and we'll, we'll work out a time to sit down. And on the live stream, you can, uh, text that number that, uh, I'll get Nick to post the number. You text that, it'll come to me and we'll, we'll talk about it. If you're hearing the call of Christ to come follow him, don't ignore that. 